You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 110. That was just a plug. And and you can pay me afterwards, Mike. (laughs) Now, if you don't know where where Psalms is, it's on page 509. I heard Mike, I mean, I heard... Dave do that last week, tell you what page it is in the Bible in the pew. But I really would like you to take your Bible, if you don't, if you ha- don't have one with you, or uh, just use the one in the pew. Uh, if you have it on your phone, that's fine. But I'd like you to open it to Psalm 110. That is going to be where we're looking today. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but I haven't grown in the last four years. And this pulpit is a little bit tall. And so I've got to move these to, so I can see my notes. Because unlike these guys, I have to look at notes yet. Uh, but I don't know if you've noticed how things have changed in this country. This year, we're going to look back on 20 years since 9-11. Uh, it's hard to believe that 9-11 happened 20 years ago. I mean, there's a whole generation of kids that have, have been born and are growing up that don't have any memory of that. In fact, I was thinking uh, this morning as I was going over my notes, uh, you know, really, to be, to, to be honest about it, you'd almost have to be 30 years old to have a recollection about 9-11 to really remember the significance of that day. Uh, but the changes in our country started decades before what we see going on today. I mean, probably in, the, in all of our lifetimes, things have been changing, just methodically changing all around us. But in the last uh, 20 years, that change has just accelerated uh, beyond anything that we, were, we could recognize. Normally when we have someone that uh, takes an oath of office, they swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States, and implied in that oath is a fair and equal application of the nation's laws. Uh, But that hasn't been happening, probably hasn't happened in our lifetime, if if we were able to know the inner workings of everything because of the changes that are taking place all around us. But if you've received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you know that when the Lord takes you home, the last breath you take here on earth will lead to your first breath in the Lord's presence, then you don't have to be concerned about all that is going on around us. We need to pray for our nation. We need to be actively involved in everything. But we don't need to fear what's going on. And this morning, I want to I want to talk to you about the promise that we have in Scripture that Jesus Christ the Messiah will be a conquering king. Psalm 110 is one of those psalms that from the moment you begin to read it, you know that that it's special. There's something unique about it. Uh, There's lots of psalms like that in, in, in the Bible. Psalm 1 begins, verse 1, in the very first verse of Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of of scoffers. 
And immediately when you read that, you know that there's something special about that verse. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And if you've ever taken the time to read through the 150 chapters of, of, the, of the book of Psalms, there are certain chapters that, and verses that just will stand out to you. In fact, if we were in a different context and we could do it, we could just open it up and ask people, well, what's your favorite psalm? What's your favorite verse or your favorite chapter in the book of Psalms? And it wouldn't take us long before we'd realize that almost there are certain psalms that many, many people have been touched by and have been ministered to because they are the, the songs, the cries of a person's heart. And so the psalmist speaks to us, if we let him speak to us, even today, thousands of years after they were written. Now, we may not immediately be able to say why a particular psalm just strikes us, but we know that it does. We know that it ministers to us. Now, with everything going on in our country today, you know, from COVID and the resurgence of it, uh, from the new... Uh, critical race theory that we are just finding out about from uh, the southern border, it causes me to realize that we are closer and closer to the Lord's return. Now, that's a, in one way, that's just a plain, stupid statement. Because every day we live, we're closer to his return. But the Word of God talks about the signs of his coming, and it does so in such a way that as you look at it, you realize, hold it, with everything going on, we are indeed getting closer and closer to the day that the Lord Jesus is going to return. Now, Psalm 110, only seven verses in length, divides naturally in verses 1, 2, 3, verse 4, and verses 5, 6, 7. And since we're not able to get into King David's mind, we can't say with 100% accuracy precisely what he had in mind as he was writing it. You know, he is moved by God's Spirit to write this psalm, but what was it that he was, what was he trying to convey as, as a person he was, he was writing? But we're going to look at it from the perspective of what does it tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it tell us about the Messiah? And so my one thing this morning, because I still have one thing, uh, I don't think there's many pastors that still do that, but I'm too old to change. But in Christ, we are priests and we will reign with him. That's the thought that we're going to come back to over and over again as we go through our study. Let's read verse 1. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to me, oh, by the way, I had to change all my verses. Since I've left, you've, you've changed the text that you use. I mean, we used to use the New American Standard because that's what I used, and now Pastor Mike comes in and, and you use the ESV. So I had to go through all these notes, change it. But anyway, I can't read the ESV because I don't know it. I don't have it memorized. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. 
and it just dawned on me, I may not have even changed the PowerPoint, so it may have, the PowerPoint may have been the New American Standard. The very first thing that as we come to these verses that you note is the title. Now, normally we wouldn't even read the title because it doesn't have any impact on, on the passage itself. Uh, but this time it is a Psalm of David. Now, King David is the only king by whom all of the kings of Israel were ever judged. He is the one that God says of him, he was a man after his own heart. And King David, even though he is writing this, is in no way, in no way, the subject of the psalm. It's an intriguing thing. But the reason we, I noted the title, A Psalm of David, is because this is the only psalm, I think, I think it's the only psalm that Jesus specifically attributes to David. One day the Pharisees had come to, to Jesus and they were arguing with him or talking with him. And so Jesus said, let me ask you a question. Psalm twenty-two forty-two says, what do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees responded to him. They said, well, he's the son of David. So Jesus, in his way of doing things, said to them, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, that is in the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. See, right from the Lord Jesus himself, he attributes the writing of this psalm to King David. But the Lord Jesus himself is the topic, is the subject, not King David. David has nothing to do inside of this psalm at all. So the father addresses the son in verse 1. You know, our English translators used a unique and simple method for letting us know that which person of the, of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, they were speaking about, or was speaking, or was interacting with humanity. And you'll notice that in the ESV and most of our English translations, the first word, Lord, is in all capital letters. And that's the English translator's way of communicating to us that that is God's personal name, that he is speaking to us as God Jehovah, God the creator of heaven and earth. This name was first introduced to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 3. And you'll remember the story. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses has been 40 years in the desert. He had run away from, from Egypt. And he's going with the sheep, and all of a sudden he looks up on Mount Sinai, and he sees a bush that is burning, but it's not consumed. And so he walks toward the bush, and, and, and the Lord speaks to him and said, take, take the sandals off your feet, because the, the ground that you're standing on is, is holy ground. And so Moses took the sandals off, and he bowed before him. And God commissions Moses to go back to Egypt to lead the children of Israel out of the bondage of, of the nation of, it, of Egypt. 
Moses then tries to give all the reasons why I can't do that, I shouldn't do that, don't send me, send somebody else, I can't speak, and he gives all these excuses. And finally he acquiesces and said, I will go. And, but he said, Lord, if they ask me the name of the God that is sending me, what shall I say to them? And to which God answers, you will say, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you to me. And that I am in that verse is different forms of the verb to be. And the way that it has been brought together in the Hebrew text, there's four consonants. There's no way to pronounce it, so the Jews don't even pronounce it. We have added vowels to it, and we get sometimes in English the name Yahweh. Sometimes they translate it Jehovah. Uh, but that's God's personal name. So it is God the Father here speaking. There is no doubt but that it is God the Father speaking. It's interesting that this particular verse, Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most oft-quoted verse in the New Testament, from the Old Testament. More than any other verse, this verse has been cited or quoted in the Old Testament. So he says, the Lord says to my Lord. So we have the second Lord that's there, and there it is the name Adonai, and it refers to someone that is greater than the speaker, or in this case, the writer. James Boyce, in his commentary, writes, and I like the way he put it, that's why I'm going to read it to you. He says, here is a case of David's citing God's words, in which God tells another personage, who is greater than David, to sit at God's right hand until God makes the person's enemies a footstool for the person's feet. This person can only be the divine Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a rhetorical question because it's not one you're going to be able to answer, and I'm going to answer it in a second, but at what time or when did Jesus, the Messiah, take his seat to the right hand of the Father? Just give it a thought, give, give us some thought for a moment. When did that happen? Ephesians chapter 1, we have a long prayer that the Apostle Paul starts. Uh, that writes in the Ephesian letter. And in verse 20, and it's right in the middle, it's a sentence, it's, you know, and I'm starting it right in the middle, but if you note, Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, head, gave him as head over all things to the church. And so what we see in Scripture, Scripture makes it very clear that when Jesus had given his life on the cross, the sins of humanity were placed upon him. And he bore that sin and he, and he looked to God the Father and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he he breathed his last, and he was taken from the cross and then buried. And three days later, he rose again. And the first, the first account of somebody seeing him, we see Mary going to grab his feet, and he says, don't, 
Don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to the Father. And somewhere in that period, as he went up to the Father, he took his seat in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father. So this is what we see in verse 1. We see a sovereign king, King David, the greatest of all the kings of Israel that ever, that ever lived, the one by whom all the kings of Israel were judged, who was given this, this vision in his mind or in his writing or whatever where he is looking into the throne room of God and there the Lord God, the Father God, Jehovah God, Yahweh God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. See, the earthly king acknowledges that the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the Messiah, is his Lord. So remember my one thing. In Christ, we are priests and we will reign with him. So as we continue in verses 2 and, two and 3, or actually 1 to 3 again, we're going to look at the fact that the Messiah is given ruling authority. Actually, in verses 1, 2, and 3, we have three promises that are given to, to us, or are, are made, three promises from God the Father are made to God the Son. And when the Son was exalted and seated in the heaven, heavenlies, the Father gave him three promises. And the first one is in verse 1, and he, he says, God, uh, the, God the Father says that he would, that God the Son would defeat his enemies. I will make your enemies your footstool. I will make your enemies your footstool. Just note that. Then in verse 2, he, the Father tells the Son that he is going to expand his kingdom. The ESV says, he will send forth from Zion your mighty scepter. The New American Standard says, he will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. The image is that the, the kingdom is going to expand. Actually, the kingdom, when, as we look at it, is going to be over the entire earth. And then the third is in verse 3, is that he would give him a victorious army. Your people, he says, will offer themselves freely, or they will volunteer freely, like 14 ministry, freely volunteer to help. And one of the things that just jumps at you, if you take time to read it and reread it and reread the passage, it's only seven verses, is that in verses 1, 2, and 3, God the Father is speaking. And he says over and over again, I will. He is the subject of every active verb in the first three verses. Verses 5 through 7, it changes and becomes he will. So in those verses, the psalmist is speaking about the son. So in verses 1 to 3, the father is speaking to the son. In verses 5 through 7, King David is speaking about the son. Jesus is the topic or is the primary subject of the passage. So again, where we're going to end up 
is that in Christ we will reign with him. Now, I wish we, I could have taken the whole morning on verse 4. It is the highlight of, of the passage. Uh, in fact, as you look at the, at, the ver, at the structure of the psalm, it's like you have a, a, you're going up a ladder. Verse 1 leads to verse 2, leads to verse 3, leads to verse 4. And normally you would think you would do it in reverse order coming down. That's the normal way psalms are written, but it's not that way in this psalm. Again, uh, verse 1 and verse 5 are similar. Verse 2 and verse uh, 6, and then verse 3 and verse 7. So that's a little bit different. But uh, verses 1 to 4, it's like you're climbing. Verse 4 is the, is the, is the high point of the psalm. And here in the psalm, there are two oracles or divine revelations or teachings or declarations from God. The first one is verse 1. You know, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. But the second one is in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. There is a redundancy that emphasizes God's determination. I have sworn this. I will not change my mind. It's reminiscent of what you read in Numbers 23, 19, where we read, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And in this instance, it is repeated in such a way, I have sworn I will not change my mind. You, and he's talking to the Messiah, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, I want to wake you up. Turn to Genesis chapter 14. So if you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the very first book, so just go to the cover and page in a few pages. Go to chapter 14. And the chapters are the big numbers and the small numbers are the verses. And I'm going to read to you everything that the Old Testament tells us about Melchizedek. It's going to take all of a minute because it says very little. So in Genesis chapter 14 and in verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That is everything that we know about Melchizedek from the Old Testament. This event that he, that's being described took place shortly after Abram's nephew, Lot, was captured by five kings that had come to do battle against Sodom and, the, and that whole area there. And so Abram, having learned that, gathered 318 of his trained men and went after Lot and those that had captured them. In fact, actually, the text tells us he went north of Damascus. So, I mean, if you look at a map from where 
Sodom and Gomorrah was down by the Dead Sea to north of Damascus is a hike. And so they went, they traveled that distance. Uh, Abram conquered the kings, defeated them, brought back the people that had been captured and their wives and all their possessions, brought them back, and he arrives at Jerusalem, Salem as it was called at that point. So that's the, the account. Then we, he, he meets Melchizedek. He gives him a tithe of everything. That's the end. That's all we know. The next time we hear of Melchizedek is in Psalm 110. A thousand years have gone by. Abram lived 2,000 years before Jesus. David lived 1,000 years before Jesus. And so nothing is said about Melchizedek at all until we have one verse in Psalm 110. And then the next time we see Melchizedek, another thousand years goes by, and we find him in Hebrews chapter, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And all of a sudden, we're given all sorts of information about how it is that Melchizedek was a, was a priest. So what do we know about him? Well, in Genesis, he's called a king of Salem. That simply means that's an ancient name for Jerusalem. It simply means peace. He was priest of God Most High, El Elyon. He appears and disappears just like that. Nothing is said about him before that. Nothing is said about him after that. In fact, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3 says, He is, concerning Melchizedek, without father, without mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now I read that because that verse has led to all sorts of speculations. I'm not going to talk about all the speculations that there are out there. But my favorite thought, probably it's because that's what we, were, we discussed when I was in Bible college 50 years ago, is that Melchizedek, was Noah's son, Shem. That's the ancient Jewish, or the, the traditional, the ancient traditional Jewish thought as to who Melchizedek is. He was the son of Shem. Now, it makes sense if you think about it. Shem was born prior to the flood. Nobody lived through the flood except Noah and his wife and his three sons, Ham, Shep, and Japheth, and their wives. So they come out of the flood. There's eight people. Each of the sons established themselves in a different region. Shem established, him, established himself in that region of the Fertile Crescent and very much in where Israel is today in that area. And if you look at the, the length of his life, that's recorded in whatever chapter it's in, in early Genesis. He died 35 years after Abraham. So he was born before the flood, lived through the flood, lived for hundreds of years, and then Abraham was born, lived 200 and whatever it was, and Shem died 35 years after Abraham had died. And so... He was without beginning, without end, without genealogy. However, we know one person that Melchizedek was not. He was not a 
a theophany or an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament because in Hebrews we are told that he resembled, he resembled Christ. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, king and priest in one. If you know anything about Israel and the Old Testament, you know that Israel was set up to be a theocracy. And all the time prior to the kings, there were judges. They were the ones that were leading the people. But the king was God himself. And there came a point where the people said, no, we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king like, so we can be like the other nations. And so Samuel led them or anointed Saul to be that first king. And once the nation was set up, the king, the, the royal family or the kings or the judicial portion and the priestly portion were separated. And the thing that caused trouble for Saul as the king was that as the king, he did the sacrifice before they went into battle, something he was not to do, and his kingship was taken away from him. See, it's not dislike what we have in the United States. The church is to be separate from the state. Not that it was not to influence the state, but it was to be separate from the state. Why is that? Because... And Lord Acton, back in the 1800s, said it really, it's been quoted over and over again, all power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And what we've lived through in the last 18 months with COVID is a, is a vivid illustration of that power, is that power is given, and, it, and there is such corruption in those that hold Power. And if you give absolute power to someone, it leads, not perhaps, but it absolutely leads to corruption. Now, Christ is going to be both a righteous king and a king of peace. And the, he is going to be the priest who changes the heart of his followers. But before he can reign, he has to vanquish the enemies that are there. So that brings us to verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment from among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So here the psalmist speaks. Here it is King David, the psalmist who is speaking. It appears that God the Father is no longer the one speaking. But David is looking into God's throne room and he, he is speaking of the Messiah's victory. And so in essence, we move from the book of Hebrews in verse 4 all the way to the book of Revelation where, the, where we have the conquest of the king. So we started in Genesis where we have Melchizedek. Well, actually, we said before that we started in 
creation where we have God the Father and God the Son, but then we come to Melchizedek. We come to Hebrews in verse 4 where we join together the, uh, the kingship and the priesthood, and then we go to Hebrews that explains it, and then we end up in Revelation where the conquering king will have victory. He is going to vanquish his enemies. And so the picture takes us to the great battles of the book of Revelation. Warren Wiersbe writes, there will come a day of wrath, the day of the Lord when Jesus, the Lamb of God, will begin to roar as a lion, of the, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, and judgment will fall upon the world. And that's where these last verses are looking at, that victory that is given to the Messiah. Verse 6 says, and I want to read it once again, He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth. No one, no one will be able to stand against Christ the Messiah when he comes in victory. And the word translated chiefs in the ESV is translated chief men in the New American Standard. It's translated rulers in uh, the new NIV, the new, new International. But it is a singular noun in Hebrew, and it most likely refers to that final and great antichrist that is going to stand against the Lord Jesus Christ. The ruler that will seek to take power over all the earth that Christ will vanquish. And I love verse 7 because it is the most difficult verse in the passage. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So during his conquest, and this is the point, during his conquest, he stops only briefly, just, just a moment. In other words, he doesn't linger. The, the battle will be fought and won, therefore he will lift up his head in final victory. So let's go back to my one thing as we conclude. In Christ, we are priests and we will reign with him. The priest is a mediator between man and God or mediator between God and man. They had a very special place in Israel because of their position. And those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. Peter says to us in chapter, 1 Peter 2.9, but you, those of us that have trusted Christ, you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our responsibility as a priest is to share the good news that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that he is coming again. We need not be fearful about anything that goes on around us, because once we are in Christ, the victory is assured. We may not see it, but then again, we might see it. 
And one thing is for certain, we are going to reign with him because only that message of faith in Christ can change a nation. It changes the heart. And as the heart is changed, a person's actions change and their viewpoint changes and everything else changes about them. But not only are we going to be intercessors and mediators, we're going to reign with Christ. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests, and of Christ, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So we're going to have the praise team come up. During the millennium, and I know that wasn't the topic for today, but during the millennium, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to reign over this world and it will be a reign of righteousness and it will be a reign of priest, of peace and those who are in Christ, those that have received him as Savior, are going to reign with him. What is that going to look like? We have no idea. There's nothing given to us in Scripture to really be able to say, well, this is what we're going to do. We are just told we're going to reign with him. But you can't reign with him unless you know him as your Lord and Savior, unless you have received him to be your Savior. So that as we conclude this morning... Just ask yourself, if something were to happen today and I were to die, where would I end up? It's a very simple question. I'm sure it's asked often from the pulpit. Because if you can't answer it, then you need to make sure that you stop, that you examine yourself, that you ask God to open your heart and ask him the forgiveness of your sin and to receive him as your Savior. Then, and only then, can you look forward to the day when you will reign with him for maybe for eternity, we're not told, but at least for those thousand years. Now we're going to conclude this morning. Actually, they're going to conclude. I'm just going to sing along with them. With Behold Our God. They couldn't have chosen a better song to, to end with. Because as we, as we end, and the song just really lifts you up. I mean, it just, it, it's, you know, we don't sing it enough down in Florida where I am. They'll sing it a couple of times a year. But it's one of those songs where, where the full focus is on our God reigning, and we are going to reign with him. So if you haven't received Christ, please just ask him to forgive you and to come into your life today. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.